Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Give everyone a second. Start seeing some, hopefully see some people jumping on here. And we will continue our Easter service this morning. Right, I see a few jumping on here. Give it another moment. I don't know about you, but I have been blessed this morning. Uh, thank you to Brother Jeff for his service in Sunday school the last several weeks, and also to the Dubois family and Ben and Grayson and, and them serving with our worship uh, to continue as, as normal as possible. Uh, and of course, just helping us all look forward to that time that we can begin gathering and fellowshipping together again publicly as a church uh, once all of this blows over and we look forward to that day. Uh, we thank you, encourage you uh, to continue to be a part of these services, uh, to remain connected to your church family during this time. Uh, as we have quite a few jumping on here, I'll go ahead and get started and say Happy Easter to you all. I'm thankful for this Easter Sunday. I'm thankful for this Resurrection Sunday that we get to celebrate, we get to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that three days later he rose again victoriously. Uh, I would encourage you, go ahead and grab your Bibles, grab your Bibles and find the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with uh, where that is, you'll go to the New Testament, go past all four Gospels, then you'll go past Acts, Romans, and then you'll run right into 1 Corinthians, and just simply from that point find chapter 15. And that is going to be our main text this morning, and we will be starting in verse 1 as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. All right, and if you have found it, we're still looking for it. We will open up this morning with a word of prayer on this Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, God. I thank you for this, this opportunity, God, to gather together to celebrate this Easter Sunday. And God, even though it may seem with everything going on, there's not that much to celebrate. God, us who know Christ, there's always rejoicing. There's always joy in our lives and in our hearts. Because despite what is going on around us, God, we know that Jesus has risen. And we know that he has defeated sin and death and he is alive forevermore. God, we pray that you would encourage us this morning from your word. God, you would help us to see the truths of your word. And God, that we might display those truths to a lost and dying world as we seek to glorify you in our lives. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the truth of Jesus and your word. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I am constantly in need of reminders. I am always needing someone to remind me of something. I seem to be somewhat forgetful. One thing that has been a lifesaver to me is reminders on my phone. Reminders through my calendar. I always put even the simplest things. If I am having trouble remembering, I just put a reminder in and it reminds me the next day or even the week or even the month when it actually is happening. It's something that I constantly need. I don't know if you're like me, but the reason I think I need reminders is because I can be so distracted by things in this life and in this world. 
And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we're actually seeing Paul reminding this church at Corinth of something very important. Now, not only do we see something as small as remembering to pay a bill or to go and do something, a certain task as important, but we also see in God's word to remember or to be reminded of certain truths is also extremely important. If it's important to remind ourselves of the little things, how much more so is it important to remind ourselves of the big things? Well, we see that God is a God of remembrance. God is a God of reminder. We see God working throughout his word, throughout his people, giving them days and times to remember what he has done for them and through them. And that's why we do this every year on Easter Sunday, isn't it? To remind ourselves of this great truth of resurrection. And actually the fact is, it's not just Easter Sunday gathering together, reminding ourselves of the rising of Jesus, the raising of Jesus. But actually it's every Sunday. It is the reason that we gather on the Lord's Day. It's the reason that we gather on this first day of the week. It is this weekly reminder and it's this pattern that we see set by the early church to be reminded of the great truths of the resurrection, our living hope in Jesus. So it is extremely important for us as the church, as followers of Jesus, to be reminded of certain truths as we go throughout our days. So what does Paul say that we need to be reminded of. What does he remind this church of? Well, we see in verse 1, if you look there in chapter 15 with me, we see what he begins to remind them of. Now, of course, this is 14 chapters into the letter. We are getting near the end of this letter that he writes to this church. And he starts in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now that may seem strange to you. I mean, Paul is writing to this church who knows Jesus, who knows the truth about Jesus. So why is he, especially towards the end of this letter, reminding them of the gospel? Because we need to be reminded of the gospel truths. Martin Luther said that we need to be reminded of the gospel daily because we forget it daily. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we actually intentionally need someone to retell us the gospel. But essentially that we don't think of it as we ought to. It's not just a yearly reminder. It's not just a weekly reminder. We ought to be reminding ourselves of the gospel truths on a daily basis. And Paul begins to do that here with this church. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you received and which you stand. So Paul was encountered with the gospel truth on the road to Damascus. He takes that message and he begins to share it with churches and communities and towns like we see in in Corinth, he's sharing the gospel, and it's the gospel in which they stand. He goes on, verse 2. He says, By this gospel you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So even in this, there is a warning that they are to genuinely believe and hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We need to be reminded, folks. We need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel. That's why we do things like Easter Sunday. That's why we are so traditional. Not to get caught up in the monotony of it all, but to genuinely, sincerely remind ourselves of God's goodness and his working throughout history and his working throughout the resurrection. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to remind ourselves of the gospel truth as Paul does here in the next few verses. We start there in verse 3. If you look there with me. 
He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. So Paul says of first importance or of utmost importance, I gave you what I received, what I heard on the Damascus road, my encounter with the risen Lord. I have sent that directly to you. And the first thing, the starting place of the gospel is really two things that we see. Firstly, he says Christ died. But why did Christ die? Why did Jesus experience the cross? Well, we have to talk about the reason to fully understand the beginning of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Did you know that we are sinful? Now, when we talk about that word sin, understand we're not just talking about little mistakes or happy accidents, as as Bob Ross might say. We're not talking about these little accidents that we have or these little mistakes. No, it is something much worse than that. We are talking about complete and total rebellion towards a holy, righteous God who has all authority and all power. Sin is the breaking of his holy, perfect law. And we are sinful. Not that we have done one or two things, but it is utterly who we are. Apart from Christ, we are sinful creatures. And this sin, it doesn't just make us bad. It separates us from creator God And even more than that, Paul says in Ephesians 2, if we are found outside of Christ, we are dead. We are spiritually dead, separated from a holy God, breaking God's law. Now, why is this such a serious thing? When we call this sin, or maybe you've heard it called an offense, why is it such a serious thing to sin or offend a holy, righteous God who has all authority? Well, let me illustrate it to you like this. I have a couple brothers. I have two brothers. I'm the baby, so of course I'm the favorite. No brainer there, right? I have two brothers. Okay, Both of them are pastors. Imagine I went up to my least favorite brother and I slap him in the face. So you might be asking, why did I slap Jeremy in the face? Well, let's say I did it. Just out of nowhere, hypothetically, I go up to Jeremy, I slap him in the face, and you ask, well, what would Jeremy's response be? Well, he'd probably hit me back, right? And you'd probably say, well, you deserve that. Well, let's say I take the same offense. I take the same act. And I run up to a police officer and I slap him in the face. What's going to happen? Well, I'll probably be arrested. I'll be arrested for assault because that's what I deserve. Okay, let's say that I'm at a rally that our president holds once all of this blows over. And I'm there close to the stage and I jump up on the stage and I think, I'm going to slap the president in the face. Now, I support our president, of course, according to God's word. I pray for our president as we all should. This is all hypothetical. And let's say I jump on that stage and I say, I'm going to rush the president. I'm going to slap him in the face. What would happen to me? What would Secret Service do? Well, I guarantee you they wouldn't ask any questions. More than likely, I would be arrested or even killed. Now, let me ask you, in that scenario, in that hypothetical, what changed? The offense stayed the same. What changed is the authority by whom I was offending. And, And it's not that we've offended a brother. It's not that we've offended law enforcement. It's not that we've offended the president. We have offended God Almighty who has all authority and all power and all righteousness and holiness. We have broken his law. And what is the result of that? Well, if we remain in our sins, a breaking of a law deserves punishment, deserves condemnation. We understand this in our law system today. We understand this from a judicial system today. If you break a law, whether it's something as small as stealing or breaking the speed limit and something as heinous as murder, we understand there's a judgment for that, right? And someone who's committed this crime and they're found guilty, we all understand and agree, yes, they should experience that punishment. We call it owing a debt to society. Scripture says our sin is no different. Actually, it's much, much worse. 
that we owe a debt to Creator, to God, because of the sin that we have committed against Him. That we have slapped Him in the face and we have rebelled against the authority of God Almighty. Romans chapter 8 tells us that in our sin, we are still enemies of God. So a broken law equals judgment. And what is that judgment? What is that condemnation? Well, Scripture is very clear. Clear. It is an eternity in hell. Now, it's very, very interesting. Our society wants to twist the words of Jesus and want to make him this teacher who is all loving and all kind. And of course he is. But did you realize Jesus speaks more about eternal punishment than he does about eternal paradise? Jesus speaks more about the reality of hell than the reality of heaven because it's a real place. It's a place that we all deserve if we remain in our sins. But something interesting happens in the story of God's word, in the truth of God's word. Well, we get to a book like Colossians, which is one of my favorite books. And Paul, who is also the author of 1 Corinthians, here in Colossians as well, chapter 2, he says something amazing in verse 13. He says, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive, having forgiven all of your trespasses. That sin that we've just talked about, that terrible thing that we are, that we just talked about, Paul says it's been forgiven. It's been taken care of. How? Because of Jesus. Verse 14. Saying that Jesus has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. The verse goes on and says he takes it and he nails it to the cross. As we see in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. That he who knew no sin became sin. He, he took our sin and he paid the debt of our sin. Now we tend to elevate, we tend to elevate the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And there is no way I can mentally wrap my mind around the physical pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. But did you know that's not near the worst part of it? The physical suffering is bad enough. And the reason I think we focus on that so much is because we can kind of some way wrap our minds around physically suffering. But it wasn't just that Jesus physically suffered. No, he took the full wrath of God, the wrath of God that would have put me in hell for all of eternity. He took it on the cross and he paid the ultimate sacrifice and price for my sins and your sins. If you are found to be in Jesus, he paid the price. It wasn't just a down payment. It wasn't just a part of a payment. It was the whole. As the old song says, not in part, but the whole. Every bit of it. The last thing that Jesus said on the cross, three words, it is finished. Our sin debt is paid, and it's only paid through the sacrifice of Jesus. We celebrate the cross. We look at the cross. We embrace the cross. But what's interesting is when we study the events right after the cross, we don't see celebration, do we? But we don't see excitement from the disciples. If you know much about the events that took place during the crucifixion and after, you know that the disciples had scattered. You know that they were gathered together after, but they were fearful. They weren't going out. They were afraid something was going to happen. So, so why, if Jesus had just paid this ultimate price, this ultimate sacrifice, why did they not celebrate it immediately after? Well, because of what we see next in verse 4 in a reminding of the gospel. Not only that he died for our sins, but that he was buried. And that's where they were three days, during the three-day period before Jesus rose. He had died. He had truly died. There was no possible chance that he was still alive because of the Roman crucifixion that he experienced. He truly 
died. And for three days, for three short days, it appeared that death had won. It appeared that Jesus' sacrifice was all for naught because he was in the grave and everything was still the same. But then Jesus arose. Look at verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Jesus, in Romans 1.4, tells us, Paul writes, he is declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. All of the signs and wonders that Jesus did throughout his ministry, all of the teachings leading us to the point, the greatest sign of them all that teaches us and tells us the truth of who Jesus is. And that's the resurrection. That we have faith in him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of everything, because he rose. He didn't stay in that grave. He died, and for three short days, it looked like death had won. Sin was not defeated, but church, he rose. And he is alive forevermore. At the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, we see our sin debt paid, sin and death defeated by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is the gospel message, and it is the cause of our celebration and our remembrance today. Understand something, as we see in verse 3 and 4, there's a phrase there I want you to, to look at. If you look there in 3 and 4 with me, four words at the end that say, in accord, or five words, I guess I should say, in accordance with the scriptures. He says that about Jesus' death. He says that about Jesus' burial and resurrection. See, all of the word of God, all of God's word throughout history points us to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, all of it attests to that fact. Jesus even told the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that all of the scriptures that they had studied, they're studying scriptures that are talking about him. Everything that we see in God's word points us to the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But not only that, not only do we have confidence in Jesus' resurrection because of the word of God and the testifying of the word of God, but also because the eyewitnesses attested to it. Look there in verse 5. Brother Jeff mentioned this passage. Paul goes into a personal testimony and talking, starts talking about the eyewitnesses, those who actually seen the risen Lord. Look there in verse 5. Paul says, And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. We not only have the word of God that points us to the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have the eyewitness testimony of those who've seen the risen Lord. And why is that so important? Because their testimony and their lives confirm the truth of Jesus' raising from the dead. I want you to listen to a, a quote from a guy named Charles Colson. Now that name may sound familiar to some of you. He was a, an aide for President Nixon during the Nixon Administration. Of course, he was more infamous, I think, during the time and may still be today because of his part in the Watergate scandal. Listen to what he says about the resurrection in comparison to the Watergate scandal. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The only thing that I would add to Mr. Colson's word is it wasn't 12 people. It was hundreds, hundreds of people who seen the risen Lord and went out living a life that displayed and confirmed that truth. People will say, well, they were just lying. Let me ask you, why do people lie in your life? Why do you tell a white lie? Well, it's really one of two reasons to, to boil it all down. One, to, to escape trouble, right, to get out of trouble. And secondly, it's to gain something. It, it, whether it's monetarily speaking or power, whatever it is, it's to either escape trouble or, or to gain something in this life. When we study the lives of the disciples, the apostles, the early church, the eyewitnesses, neither of those is true of their lives after. They never denied the resurrection of Jesus. And in that, they lost everything. Many of them, even their own lives. Their testimony all agreed because they had experienced the risen Lord after his resurrection. Not only does the word of God point us to it, but the eyewitnesses attest to that fact. Now, if we study God's word and, and moving on here, we might ask, well, why does Paul jump into this testimony in context of what's going on? Well, it's because of something that was going on at the church, a certain belief that had infiltrated the way that they looked at the resurrection of the dead. If you look there in verse 12, we're going to skip a few verses, seeing the eyewitness account, and then verse 12, Paul begins to actually deal with the issue at hand that he's speaking to. Verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So, so what was the problem? What was the issue? Well, well, some people had infiltrated the church and were denying the resurrection altogether, saying, no, we don't experience resurrection. It sounds very similar to a group that Jesus dealt with in the Gospels called the Sadducees. That They rejected the resurrection from the dead. They rejected that doctrine. And here, Paul is dealing with the same thing that has somewhat, to some extent, infiltrated the church. And then we see verse 13, if you look there with me. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So Paul takes that and he begins to be logical about it and trace this logic out and tell them what they're actually saying. Paul's logic for these disruptors, he's saying that if, you, if we have no resurrection, if we as followers of Jesus have no resurrection... And that means you're claiming that Christ himself had not been raised. Well, if we look at the subject of the resurrection, and maybe the people back there would look at the words of Paul and say, well, is the resurrection really that important? Is the resurrection really that vital to the Christian faith? Is the resurrection just a part of the Christian faith that you can take or leave? Well, of course we know the answer is absolutely not. It's extremely vital to what we believe. And Paul begins to tell them why it is. Look at verse 14 with me. He lists four consequences to what it might mean if Christ had not been raised. Four consequences. He goes on, verse 14, and tells us the first one. He says, And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's the first one. He says, Our preaching, the things that we are telling you, the testimony that you are giving, we are giving you, it's in vain. He goes on, Your faith, it also is in vain. That, that Bible word, in vain, it means for something to be empty. It, it means for something to have no meaning at all. So that's the first consequence that he lists. He says, our preaching, your faith, it's all empty. doesn't matter. It's pointless. Second thing he says, verse 15, 
says we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. The second consequence Paul lists, he says those who preach Christ would be misrepresenting God, which is a very serious offense. Let me tell you, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then what I am doing right now, I would be misrepresenting God if that were true. Of course, we know it's not, but he goes on, verse 17, other consequences. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile. It's powerless. It's of no effect in cleansing or taking care of your sin debt and your sin problem. Essentially, you are still in your sins. And then he goes on, verse 19, to kind of cap this section. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says essentially that if Christ has not been raised, then we are the most pitiful people on the earth. The four consequences he lists, we'll go over them again, are preaching and your faith are in vain. They're empty. The second thing, those who preach Christ will be misrepresenting God. The third thing, your faith is futile and powerless. You're still in your sins. And then the fourth thing, we're the most pitiful people on the earth. But then Paul brings it back in verse 20. If you look there with me. But in fact, most assuredly, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. When we, when we look at the words of Paul, when we look at the consequences that he laid out there, if we ask the question, how important is the resurrection? Understand, it's not just a part of what we believe. It, it, it holds everything we believe together. It is the anchor of who we are, of what we claim about Jesus and what we know about him. If the resurrection is not true, then none of this matters at all. But to echo the words of Paul, it is true. He is alive and he is alive forevermore. Jesus is our living Hope. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter, isn't it? We've been born again to a living hope. He, he is alive and he is our hope in this life and in the next. The expectation of having salvation from our sins and eternal life to look forward to with him, our Savior. The resurrection of Jesus screams to us that he is who he claimed to be and he is deserving of our praise, our worship, and our surrender in him. Christian, understand, the resurrection of Jesus declares that his children have nothing to fear in this life. That's why we preach it boldly. That's why we go out and we share the gospel. That's why when circumstances around us are falling apart, we remain joyful and standing fast because our Savior is still alive. There's nothing that we can experience in this life that takes away that fact or that reality. Jesus is alive, and nothing in this life that you experience, that I experience, that anyone around the world experiences can change that fact. He's alive. He is risen. And he is our blessed hope. So, Christian, our response to these things, not just to remind ourselves of these things yearly, but daily, understanding Jesus is alive, and because of that, we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice. Think about the opportunity that we have right now in the middle of everything falling apart in our society to be a people who still hold to rejoicing and joy in this life because our Savior is not dead. He is alive. 
He has paid for our sin and He is alive forevermore. And He has made a place for us. He is alive and He is our living hope. I want to take a moment as we begin to close and and tell you that the resurrection of Jesus not only is a sign for those who know Christ, but it's also for those who don't know Him. And I want to talk to you for a moment. Whether you're tuning in with us now or you're watching this at a later date, understand we are very temporary creatures. We are all expiring. As I speak, every single one of us are moving closer to that time where we will stand before God, Creator. Where are you at when it comes to the truth of Jesus? If you don't know him, if you've rejected the truth of Jesus, understand what the resurrection of Jesus declares to you. Remember, the resurrection of Jesus declares that his children have nothing nothing to fear in life. But for those who don't know him, for those of you who don't know Jesus, you have everything to fear in death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. No matter what kind of life you live, whether you try to be the best person that you can, the best self you can be, or whether you're as rebellious and sinful as you want to be, the fact is, no matter what life you live, if you are still in your sin, separated from Jesus, all you will ever earn is death, eternal death. But the verse goes on, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. The call for you is to look on Jesus, repent from your sins, and believe on Him. Have faith and trust in Him for the salvation from your sins and the eternal life to look forward to that He offers to you freely by His grace and His love and His mercy for each and every one of us. A.W. Pink said, What will matter most in the hour of death is have my sins been put away by the blood of Christ. No matter what kind of life you live, no matter how much pride you take in living on your own, being independent, having fun, whatever you want to say, the only thing that will matter at the end is what have you said about Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? Have you trusted in Christ for a salvation that you could never buy, but a salvation that has been given to you by the grace and the goodness of God? Time is running short. James chapter 4 says that our life is a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. So, so as we survey these wonderful truths, this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter Sunday, to, to boil it all down and conclude, Christian, your response to these things is to look at the resurrection and rejoice in a risen Savior to rejoice that he is alive. Non-Christian, your response in looking at the resurrection of Jesus is to repent and believe while you still have time. Jesus may have died, but he rose again. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have time to believe and trust in Jesus. And Southside, I will say to you, remember to rejoice. It's not a temporary 
joy, it's not a temporary fix. It is an eternal joy that we have to look forward to with our Savior. Remember, Christian, rejoice because of the resurrection. Non-Christian, repent because of the resurrection. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for today, God. God, I thank you that even though things around us seem to be falling apart or just going crazy and chaotic, God, one thing that we can always come back to and rejoice in is the fact that we have a risen Savior. Jesus is alive, and that is cause for rejoicing now and forevermore. God, I pray for those who don't know you, that maybe they've been skeptical, maybe they've just been prideful. God, every one of us who know Jesus, we've been there. We ourselves were prideful and rejecting of Christ for a time in our life. But God, now that we know you, God, we pray that they would come to know Jesus during this time. God, that they would see the truth of the gospel and they would believe in Jesus to bring them salvation from their sins. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for our services this morning. God, that we have been able to celebrate the risen Jesus. Help us understand it's never confined to a building. It's always to go out and go before us as we rejoice to a lost and dying world. Father, I thank you again for these truths. I thank you for your word. And God, just pray that you would go with us and be with us. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.